0: Once again, welcome everyone here on the third Sunday in Lent. Welcome again, everyone online. Uh, we are continuing with one of, I think, Jesus' greatest hits from the Gospels. If you remember, the Gospel readings from Lent were designed by the early church to be basic instruction for new Christians. So they kind of had to pick, they went through and they picked five stories from the Bible that they felt like would be good introduction, uh, and I would called it the top five, and somebody said, well, what's number one? They, they weren't, like, actually ranked <laughs> Five five that they thought were really good, and I think there, there's some real wisdom in that. Uh, this one definitely made it, the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. It tells a lot about Jesus. It's really good. It's one of those stories where, you know, if an atheist came to me and said, where should I start reading the Bible? I would not say Leviticus or Judges or Revelation, I would say, you know, Gospel of John. This would be a good place to start. So here we go. This is a story with a lot of subtext. So there's what you read, and there's what's below what you read. And you've got to kind of catch the subtext. Because in human relationships, as you know, we talk at one level, and we often mean at another, right? And so there's a lot of subtext here. What's going on? Jesus... Is walking through Samaria. Samaria is this place in between Jerusalem down here and Galilee, where he's from up here. And so Jesus is always cutting through in between. And the history of Samaria is that in hundreds of years, even before Jesus, one of the previous empires that had conquered the area came in and they took away most of the Jewish people and deported them. That was part kind of their strategy. They conquer land deport everyone, almost everyone, leave just enough people to farm the land, because you've got to get your tax money, and then import a whole bunch of new people in to water down their, their sense of ethnic identity. And so then they'd be more less likely to rebel. right? If they're, if they're more watered down, they have less of an identity. They're less likely to rebel. And so that's who the Samaritans were. They, they were mixed race people. They were Jewish but not in a George Santos way Jewish. They were like (laughs) part Jewish. Um, And because they were mixed race, those who were pure uh, tended to look down on them. Uh, But they also looked down on them, not just for that, but the Samaritans had a separate temple that they built. They didn't go down to the Jerusalem temple to worship. They built one on Mount Samaria, and that always irritated the Jews in Jerusalem that they built their own temple. And it was almost like it was an act of defiance or something. Although I kind of look at it like, wait, you think we're you think we're impure and we're lesser than you, so why won't you come and join us? But that's kind of what was going on. And so there was this sort of debate, and you catch that right in the story where Jesus and the Samaritan woman are having a debate about where do we worship. It, it matters. So anyways, Jesus goes through this territory all the time. It's the closest way. And he comes to the well. And he says he's coming there, and he comes there in the middle of the day. Now, I've talked about this a little bit before, but the well was a place everybody had to go. So it was more than just a place you drew water. It had a whole social connotation to it. And us humans being who we are, we immediately start defining in-groups and out-groups and packing orders and who gets the water first and who gets to the well first. And I never grasped this being from the Midwest that until I moved here, but if it's really hot in the summer and you gotta get water, when are you gonna go get it? You're gonna get it first thing in the morning, Mm -hmm. right? You're not gonna wait until the middle of the day to go out there and sit out in the desert and then lug this thing and carry this thing well So, getting to the well first thing in the morning was kind of a status thing. And so, the way it worked is generally proper women would get together in the morning and there'd be lots of chit chatting going on and networking, right? Information shared. But improper women, or who are outcasts for any reason, they didn't get to come in the morning. They had to come later. So, there was this exclusion element to it. So if Jesus is there in the middle of the day and he runs into a Samaritan woman at the well, she's there because she can't come in they won't let her come in the morning. There's something up, and to make it worse, part of the dynamics of what would happen at the well is unscrupulous guys would show up at the well in the middle of the day, thinking these women were easy, or at least easy targets. And so, and yeah, there probably were some low status, lower status women who went there to meet guys, but, you know, it was at least a place to meet if you were cut off from all the other social circles. So all this stuff is subtext. And so Jesus comes to the well in the middle of the day and he asks her for a drink, and her reaction is Is this guy really just asking me for a drink? But being as Jesus is Jewish, and she can tell this: how he looks, how he talks. She also knew even generally lower class Jews would not hit on Samaritans. Something's not right here, right? Now we don't know exactly why this woman was at the well in the middle of the day. We get a little bit of her backstory, and this is usually where preachers will take and launch off into big narratives. So there's big legends about her. We really just get a little, a few snippets, and what we get is that. She has had five husbands, and she's living with a guy who's not her husband. And this is where it launches into the story of she's this wanton, promiscuous woman who, who is cycling through guys. she's living in sin, she's destined for hell. There's actually one of the known gospel song that literally says her soul was bound for hell. And I'm like, text doesn't say that. Um, I even had a guy one time when I used to teach a class at Pima, we got to this text. And he goes, "She's a whore." I'm like, "Whoa!" That escalated quickly. <laughs> and then I said, well, "Can you show me the evidence for that in the text? Show me where it says that?" Well, right there. I'm like, "She married the guys." You know, whatever this actual story happened, which we don't know. I'm like, "Maybe you don't have the evidence." He didn't come back after that. <laughs> He dropped. I got dropped. He probably then went and raped my professor and said bad things about me. (laughs) But, um, you know, uh, so so this is where it launches off, right? And uh, it it seems to me that the story is more a story about a woman who has kind of had, who's having to do what she's doing. Maybe she's had bad choices in men. Maybe the men have turned out to be creeps or died. We really don't know. For whatever the reason was, I tend to think she probably wasn't considered that high value in her society. And so she ended up settling. Uh, you know, we all have that friend, right? We can all think of that, that friend that makes horrible dating choices. And then we're always like, what in the world are you thinking? You know, why do you keep going back there and picking up guys from you, you know, the rusty tin bucket bar? <laughs> You're not going to meet your future husband there. You know, you come home, the last guy, he cheated on you, he didn't work. All he did was sit in his basement all day. And we shaved our heads. But I wonder, would anyone pick a guy like that if they really had better choices? I mean, how many heiresses do you see going to the rusty tin bucket? Is a bad choice really a bad choice, or it just a person working with the circumstances they have? Is it living in sin because she's supposedly just full of lust? Or is it that the things don't keep working out? So maybe she's just getting the best she can get, and she goes back to the well because society hasn't given her a lot of choice. There's a need be at the well that's being met that isn't being met in town and through the usual channels. Would she be at that well if she didn't have to? If she wasn't an outcast, maybe I would have been. She would have been there in the morning. So this is where Jesus comes in, comes in, And he starts talking about living water. Let's let's read that little chunk again. 30 verse 13, Jesus said, "'Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, "'but those who drink of the water that I will give them "'will never be thirsty. "'The water that I will give will become in them "'a spring of water gushing up to eternal life.' "'The woman said to him, "'Sir, give me this water.' So that i may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water jesus promises her that if she drinks this water she'll never be thirsty again and then when she asks for well water he's offering notice how she says there in the last line so that i may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water so uh, unless she's going to learn how to suck water out of the air or have a magical rock she's going to have to go back to the well to get water to drink this isn't about literal water is it she wants to get fixed of whatever reason it is that she has to keep coming back there And so Jesus is telling this woman who's been an outcast for years, whose ethnicity makes her an outcast in her own religion, that she will no longer be in a position of neediness and will no longer have to keep coming back to this spot to get that need met. Jesus is offering something so much better than H2O. Acceptance? Value? He's offering things she can't find in town. He's offering a new life. Here today, you know, I, when I was reading this story, I got thinking about all these online love scams. I don't know if you're familiar with how these work. Somebody poses to, goes online, pretends to be someone they're not, and they're usually just scammers working out of Nigeria or someplace like that. And what they do is they always they create this profile, pretend to be someone who's always, and it's usually like some sort of guy who's incredibly successful, has a picture on a yacht, on a boat, always shirtless, you know, looking like he's spent 17 hours a day at the gym, and he's stuck in an airport in Nigeria, and he just can't possibly get home, but could you wire me $20,000? And like, you're so successful, you have a yacht, but you can't get on the airplane? And, And you know, they feel talk shows with this, right? And, you know, Grandma's selling off all her inheritance to give to this guy, you know, John McMuscles, or whatever his name is. I mean, sometimes it's really, sometimes it's really ridiculous names they pick. And it's so obvious, and the kids are like, can you please tell, show Grandma to stop sending John McMuscles the family inheritance? And then they sit down and talk to her. You. you don't know to do this. One time they brought in the ambassador from Nigeria who looked at him and was straight down and goes, We do not hold people hostage in the airport. <laughs> but why do they do it? Why do we fall for this? Because we get lonely and we need attention. And it feels good to be wanted, right? It feels good to be needed, it feels good to be loved and desired. And it feels really good to think that somebody finds you attractive, especially that guy who's that bodybuilder and has a career in the boat, in the car. Maybe wouldn't Those guys don't always call me. It feels really good. He chose me. That rush is better than any drug. And it feels so good to have that need met, to have that emptiness filled, to have that sense of acceptance and desire that your rational mind just shuts off and you run to the bank to cash out that 401k. Because we have a need and a big emptiness and the 401k ain't filling it, but gosh, John McMussels, he told me he loved me. He texted me three times last night. And when we feel that emptiness, we'll make some very bad choices to fill it. I think what drives so much of the, quote, vices, the sins that we hear about, always railed about moralistic terms, part of what drives them is that they fill in this need. You know, you, the, the stereotype is the preacher who gets up and starts railing about morality and self-control and how all these things are the first step to hell. But when you're lonely, and nobody wants you? When you're an outcast and you don't get to hang out? When, when, when you don't look like what everyone else thinks is desirous? When it's Friday night and you're sitting there alone and nobody's messaging you? When you can turn on your phone and watch everybody else doing lots of fun stuff, and you're sitting there alone and no one's messaging you? You're already in hell. Those vices? They just give you a momentary reprieve. If you look behind, the promiscuity, the drug use, the gambling, all those things, often you'll find loneliness and trauma. Sometimes, you'll just, sometimes you will find people just living large. I went to college with many of them. But most of my life I've seen a lot more. of just going to find love in the wrong places. Because the right places wouldn't let you in. Instead of threatening hell or lecturing on self-control, and I'm all for self-control, but maybe we should be wondering about what is it that we're thirsty for? What is it we lack? What is it we're not getting? Jesus comes to the Samaritan woman and gives her something she's never had, or at least not recently. First, a conversation with a man who wasn't trying to get something out of her for his own gain. Two, she gets acceptance for who she is by someone who normally would reject her just because of who she is. Three, she gets an encounter with God that doesn't involve judging or demanding. And four, she gets a conversation with a prophet who knows about her past but still chooses to talk to her even about theological points, like where should the temple be located? In short, she gets from Jesus an acceptance and a value and a respect that she wasn't getting in town. This is living grace. This is why I try to preach with gusto, because someone has to give the living water to the thirsty instead of the judgment for our efforts to fill our emptiness. And I say to all those who are feeling that emptiness, come to the living water. Come to Jesus who fills up without condition, who gives what we really need and the values that really matter, and then you won't need to keep going back to whatever else. Amen.